my mother almost left my uh, wedding weekend early. She told me that a friend of hers was getting married. <clears throat> Just take this off. And that uh, she, she said, you know, I don't know if I can stay on Sunday. She was going to cook a family brunch for my family and my wife's family. And I said, Ma, you know, it's up to you what you want to do. But she says, my friend's getting married, you know, this Sunday. This Sunday, my wife and I got married on a Saturday night. And thankfully, my wife stayed. My mom stayed. My wife is still staying with me. And <laughs> the, um, I got married in July that year. And in September, my mom called me, or I called her, and I, I said, you know, how are things going? And she said, you know that couple that I was waiting to go to their wedding the next day after your wedding? I said, yeah, yeah. What's going on with them? She says, well, they're actually divorced now. And I said, September? They just got married in July? She said, yeah. She said, I was so glad I didn't pay my money to go to that wedding. <laughs> Mom. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you get married in July? Thousands of dollars. I tell people just the expense of having a wedding, just make it one time. You can't do this twice. But people apparently continue to do this, and there's this new trend in the world called starter marriages. Have you heard of these before? <clears throat> starter marriages. It comes from the concept of starter homes. And the idea is that when you first get married or when you first get your first job, real job, you know, you go and you buy a starter home. That means something that's uh, very much less than your budget. And you save money for the real house. That's your real house. So this concept has now moved into marriage. And they said, now your first marriage, for most people, they don't find the right person the first time around. It's a starter marriage. You got to say, have mercy. And I said, this is a warm-up. I'm not going through all this for a warm-up. <laughs> this is just practice. Starter marriages. And so as a result, people are saying, yeah, you know, we hit our five-year mark. It was just a starter marriage, now moving on, and I found the real person for me. And this is a trend. This has been going on for almost 10 years now. And you cannot even imagine just the destruction. And most of the time, they try not to have children, of course, um, because that just complicates your starter marriage um, going forward in the future. And so clearly, the family is in a situation. Can you say amen? Things are not easy. If you want to have a godly family that stays together in the long run, the world is not catered to your family. And so as a result, we, we really must be thankful that we have at least this weekend, but I just want to pray that we would not, we wouldn't stop studying family after today. This wouldn't just be a youth day kind of topic, but that we would sincerely go home, each and every one of us, and really begin to consider as families together in worship, in study, and in prayer, what is it that the Lord would have us to do? What is his ideal for the family? And how we can live up and realize that ideal. What do you say? It's, it's a critical thing, and I definitely commit to still studying this topic. The more I study it, the more I'm convicted that it needs to be preached. And the more I realize that I am a sinner in need of a savior. Let's pray together as we get started with our message tonight. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us through this day. We thank you for the wonderful food that we had and those who served us. We pray that you'll bless them and most multiply their energy. Father, we also pray that you would continue to bless Anton and Kia after this first year of marriage. We're thankful that they've stayed together and that they've shown us that it's in the valleys that we grow. And therefore, Father, I pray that they would continue to be a lily of the valley in their community, um, in their church and in their family. Lord, now we ask as we open your word that you would abide with us through the person of your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us through scripture and direct our thoughts to those things that would transform our families. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our message again is The Interference of the Home. The Interference. This morning we talked about the what? Does anybody remember? The Influence of the Home. Maybe the potluck was a little heavy for you. Too many chickpeas. So, Anyway, the interference of the home. I want to start off with a, a comment by an American minister. He's not an Adventist minister, but he's very well known in a lot of evangelical circles. His name is Reverend Ike. And one of the things that he is quoted as saying, preaching on the streets of New York City, he says, do you know what the best thing you can do for the poor? And then he says, the best thing you can do for the poor is not be one of them. And it's a powerful statement. Now, obviously, he sounds a little prosperity gospelish. You know, so you need to make money so you can be a blessing to the poor, not teach the poor how to make money themselves. But that's for a whole nother discussion. But his point is still very salient and very pointed and also very true. You cannot help a poor person if you yourself are poor. And therefore, the best thing you can do for a poor person is not be one of them. Therefore, you can help them. But when you look at our families, when you look at our homes, when you look at our marriages, the question now comes down to us, what's the best thing you can do for your family? What's the best thing you can do for your marriage? And that's what I want to take as my topic tonight because it answers the question, what is it that brings the chief interference in the marriage? You see, the number one issue in most marriages is communication. Does somebody know that I'm telling the truth on that? Communication. It's like you guys are from two different planets, even though you grew up maybe 20 feet away from each other. And you're thinking once you get married, all of a sudden you don't know how to talk to each other. And so this question of what's the best thing to do for your family? What's the best thing you can do? I want to take you to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis in the third chapter. When you're there, if you could say amen. If you're not there, just say have mercy. Okay. If you don't have a Bible, just say, pray for me. So. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, in verse 6. Are you there? All right, the Bible says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, 
and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, when you read this, this particular verse in the Bible, it's, it's, it's a verse that is pregnant with meaning. There is so much significance in these words that it does not jump out to us immediately from the surface of the text. And I start by saying these words. First of all, the fact that Eve eats this particular forbidden fruit, she does not keep it to herself. It's interesting that sinners are natural evangelists. You don't have to tell them to go out. You don't have to tell her to bring it back to her husband. She goes on her own. The serpent didn't say, and by the way, after you eat the fruit, if you like it, why don't you take it back to your husband, Adam? Nope. They automatically go. And some of you who know, who have worldly friends, they don't have any problem trying to invite you to a strip club, trying to get you to take drugs, trying to get you to leave your spouse or all kinds of other crazy things. They have no problem to come and say, look, man, I'm doing it. This is how it worked out for me. Walking commercials for these things. And it's a wonder that we find it hard to go share Christ. But nevertheless, this woman runs to her husband. Now, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 in verses 16 and 17, God had commanded the man and he says, you may eat of every tree of the garden freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall what? Surely die. Now, follow Adam's conundrum. So Adam's wife comes back to him from the forbidden tree, and she's eaten the fruit. And as she comes to him, she says, Adam, Adam, look, I have the fruit. Now, the question is, what is going on in Adam's mind? At this particular point in time, when his wife comes up and she's got two chunks bitten out of this thing, Adam's thinking in his mind, she should be what? Dead, but she is alive. So now Adam has a choice to make. And that choice is, does he trust his experience? Does he trust his five senses? Does he trust his emotions or does he trust the word of God? So as she's coming, it'd be different if she came to Adam, right? And as she comes to him, this is how I imagine it in my mind. Forgive my imagination. But this woman is coming to Adam, right? Her skin is falling off. Eyeball is coming out. Adam! Adam! I ate the fruit. That's not a good quality type of evangelism, right? Adam's thinking, God's word is true. Stay away from me. I'm not eating the fruit. Are you following? But you see, this is what makes it so attractive, is that externally she looked like everything was perfectly fine. This is always the case for sinners. People in the club, people cheating, people partying, people having affairs, all these different things going on, and they make it look like they're just so happy. They look like they're enjoying life, but we know the truth behind what's going on in Eve's mind. She is deceived. She has no idea the gravity of her situation, but Adam does. And now Adam is in this situation where he has to make a decision. Do I trust my feelings, my, my sense of touch, my sense of reason, 
Because it's not just his emotions, not just his senses, but even his mind. Because Adam could reason logically in his brain. God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Eve has eaten of the tree. Eve is alive. Therefore, God's word is not true. Does that not make logical sense based on his experience? Yes or no? Yes, it does. So now Adam is not just fighting with emotions. He's fighting with logic. And at this particular point in time, you ask the question, what is the best thing Adam could do for his family? And the answer to that question is very simple. The best thing for Adam to do for his family, for his wife, and for every other child and descendant that would come through him, the best decision he can make for his family is to obey God. Is not to eat of the fruit. Do you know why? Because Adam ate the fruit. Therefore, the Bible says, you know what? I will multiply your sorrow in childbearing. Because Adam ate the fruit. Do you know why a woman is raped every 26 seconds in South Africa? Because Adam ate the fruit. Do you know why almost 40% of youth from 18 to 24 attempt suicide more than once? Many of them are successful. And a person attempts suicide every 40 seconds in the world. Every 40 seconds. Because Adam ate the fruit. Do you know why the Lord was crucified? Because Adam ate the fruit. Do you know why Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me? Because Adam ate the fruit. Do you know why when you go home and your wife goes off on you in an unchristlike way, do you know where that came from? Adam ate the fruit. Do you know when you go to your job and your boss says, I could care less that it's Christmas and you want to be home with your family, you're going to come to work because Adam ate the fruit. Do you know why Esau was coming to kill his brother? Do you know why Laban deceived Jacob into marrying Rachel's sister? Should I continue? Or do we get the point? Because Adam ate the fruit. The worst thing he could have done for his family was to disobey God. So right here in this question, we say, what's the best thing you can do for your family? It's to do what Jesus told you to do. It's to obey God. That's the best thing to do. But here he's looking at his wife thinking, oh, Eve's going to die. God's probably going to let her die. And she's my wife. She's my best friend. She's my all. She completes me. I'm going to die with her and eat the fruit. You fool. Because in these moments of situations, what's happening in Genesis 3 is not about humankind. This is about their marriage. This is about their family and every other child that would come through them in the future. This is what we inherit 
from our ancestors. A fallen nature. When you sit down today and you ask yourself the question, here I am, struggling with this sin for years. Here I am trying to get victory. Here I am fighting against something I know it's wrong. And I've asked forgiveness of Jesus time after time after time after time. We're having this battle because Adam did not do the best thing for his family. That means as you and I decide what we do in our families, do we recognize what we're giving to our children? And their children and their children's children. Right here from the very beginning, there's much more at stake than what meets the eye. It seemed like it was such a small thing, right? Don't eat a fruit. What bad thing could come out of this? You ask that question until you find out how many children are sexually abused. You ask that question until you find out how many young boys are in prison there to spend the rest of their future. You ask that question until you find out how many people contract HIV every day. How many people are addicted to cocaine, to marijuana, to meth, and all kinds of other drugs. You ask that question until you read about date rape in universities. You ask that question until you meet a young girl who thought the guy loved her that got her pregnant only to find out when responsibility came knocking at his door, he decided to move out. Then you recognize the best thing Adam could have done for his family was obey God. This is what brings interference into the family. Because Adam is looking at Eve and he's thinking, I want to be loving towards her. I want to react to what she's doing. Rather than asking himself, this is not about Eve. That's not the issue on the table. You put something on the table, Adam, that is not even of worth considering. Wait, what's going to happen to Eve? That's besides the point. The question you need to be asking yourself is, if I disobey God, what are the potential consequences of this? So when we come home and we say, you know what, as this person is going off on me, and yelling and being unkind, I'm thinking, you know what? This person's going to think they can do this to me all the time. This person thinks they can walk all over me. This person thinks that they can just disrespect me. This is what's going through our minds. And we're basing our decisions by an issue that's not really on the table. The issue on the table is, will you obey God? Be angry, but sin not. Let your words always be seasoned with grace. Does it say, except when people cut you off? Is that what the Bible says? It doesn't say that. But when you and I look at our family life and all the interference that's coming in, it's because of disobedience. It's because we are not yielding. Because the heart of disobedience is a lack of faith. The heart of disobedience is a lack of faith. 
in God. There's no way, listen to me very carefully as I say this, because I'm going to go to different people in the Bible. It is impossible to trust God and disobey him. It is impossible to trust God and then disobey him. Lord, I trust you, but I'm about to do the exact opposite of what you're saying. So we can come to church, we can profess on our Facebook, we can put it on our Twitter account, I am a seven-day Adventist Christian. But if you really trust him, you cannot disobey him. Let me explain what I mean. When you look in this passage in Genesis 3, I want you to notice what the serpent says to Eve. Go back there. The Bible says in verse 1, The serpent said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he quotes part of what God said. Then the woman says, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God what? God knows that in the day that you eat of it, what will happen to you? Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, what? Knowing good and evil. In other words, notice what the serpent is telling the woman. He says to the woman, listen, I know what God knows that you don't know. Are you following that so far? For him to come to a woman who has face-to-face communion with God and tell her, God knows this, he just didn't tell you. Are you following? God knows that if you eat of this tree, what will happen to you? Your eyes will be opened. Hence, he made a restriction. Do you know why? Because God wants you to need him. You see, Eve, you don't, you don't see it, right? Get this, get this. God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll know good and evil yourself. You won't need him to tell you what's right and what's wrong. You will know yourself. Therefore, you won't need God, and God knows that. So what God does is he restricts this tree so you can be dependent upon him. So you can always go to God for guidance. So you always have to pray to him to teach you what to do, what's right, what's wrong. God knows, and this is what he did. Now, listen to what I'm about to say very carefully, because I don't want you to misunderstand me. What you do with what you know reveals your character. What you do with what you know reveals your character. So if God knows that Eve can eat this tree... And it will open her eyes so that she can see good and evil for herself. And God restricts it. And it will help her to be like God. Was she not created to be like God? Yes or no? She was. She was created to be like him. In his image. But now God is saying, I created you for a purpose that you can never fulfill. 
Because I restricted the one tree that will help you to become like God. So I tell people this illustration. If I'm a medical doctor and you have cancer and I know how to cure your cancer and I choose not to give you the cure, what kind of doctor am I? Am I a good doctor? Am I a kind doctor? Am I loving? No, what am I? I'm evil, right? I'm going to let you die from a disease you don't have to die from. Are you following? And it is no sweat off of my back to give you a cure. It's not like I got to climb the Himalayas or go into the very depths of the ocean to get it. I have the cure. So as a result, what we do with what we know reveals our character. If I know people in Birmingham are dying, impending going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus and I don't go share with them, what is my character? I have the cure for your sin. If I know that if my son and my daughter, unless they have the knowledge of God and of the science of salvation, and I don't spend any time to teach them, this is what I know, but this is what I do. What does that reveal about my character? What we do with what we know reveals our character. So I love it when young people tell me how their parents are hypocrites, their older brother is a hypocrite, this person, he's in church pretending like he's all holy. And I said, so you know what it means to be holy. Oh, yeah, you can't be going to the club. You can't be dating this girl and that girl and then thinking you're going to call yourself a Christian man. I said, that's what you know. So what are you doing? Because what you do with what you know reveals your character. If you know what is the right way to do Christian living, then how are you living? That's a little more personal now. Can't blast someone else. To criticize someone else is self-condemning unless you're living up to the standard. So with God, when the serpent brings this argument to Eve, he wants Eve to distrust God. He wants Eve to think in her mind, God is withholding a good thing from me. That's what he wants her to believe. And only a selfish, only an unloving God will withhold a good thing from me. So therefore, as soon as Eve buys into this, she's distrusted God. She's lost faith in him. It's only natural to disobey him. Because her faith is gone. Soon as we lose our faith in God, the very next thing is to disobey him. What else would you do? Who would obey someone who they feel does not have their best interest in heart? Who would submit to someone's authority who you feel is trying to keep good things from you? Oh, I knew you would get the promotion. So therefore, I scheduled the meeting when I knew you would be on vacation. When they'd be looking for new candidates. Oh, I knew that you would enjoy time with your wife, so I made sure that you never had a day off so you could take her out on a date night. I knew that your daughter needed you, and so therefore I made sure you were doubly busy so you were never home. 
all these different things, you're thinking to yourself, how can I submit to a person who will plan for their own good above mine? I cannot submit to you. And if we won't submit to God, then what will we do? Rebel. Hence, we can safely say, every failure in our homes is due to a lack of faith. We don't trust God, therefore we don't obey Him. We don't obey Him, guess what's coming into our family? Sorrow. Pain. Division. Blame. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit. Cannot tell you how many men are blaming their wives for their lack of spirituality. No, Adam, it's your fault. Eve didn't force you. She didn't pull a sumo wrestling tactic and wrestle you down, knocked you unconscious and forced the fruit into your mouth. Is that what took place? No, no, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and made... No, no, come on. Adam, you're about 18 feet tall. <laughs> you were made from God's hand. I highly doubt this is how it went down, but this is how we like to present it. So when we say what's the best thing we can do for our family is to obey God. It doesn't just apply to withholding things. Don't eat this fruit. I want you to look at Noah. Go to Genesis, go to um, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And here you have a story through Noah. Where the Bible says in verse 7, are you there? Okay. The Bible says this, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now notice this. The Bible says he prepared an ark to the saving of who? Is that all the ark was for? You're telling me God told you to build this big old boat to save your family. Is that what the goal of the ark was? Who could have gotten on that ark? Anyone. But they did not. Now the question is, why did his family? Because here's the point. Here's Noah. And Noah gets, the Bible says in verse 7, Noah being divinely warned. Who warned him? God warned him. If God warned him, that God spoke to him. Are you with me? There was no Bible. Moses was not born yet. There's no Bible. There's no text. That says we're living in the last days. No. So God had to come to Noah and speak to him in his mind. And he says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world and I'm going to send a flood. 120 years. Now here Noah knows, but what you do with what you know <laughs> reveals your character. So Noah knows. And then the Bible says he was warned of things not yet seen. 
This is future. This is not a present crisis. In the Bible adds, Noah moved with godly fear and prepared a what? An ark to the saving of his household. So here's the question. What's the best thing Noah could do for his family? Obey God. Because here's Noah knows what's coming. A flood. Now what if Noah is sitting there and no, Mrs. Noah comes to him and says, Noah, when, when you talk about rain, what are you talking about? Then his wife brings over a group of scientists to sit down with Noah. And these people have been living for 800 years. Excuse me, Mr. Noah, can you explain this rain phenomena again? Rain, is that what you call it? Yes. Water is going to come from the sky. Mm-hmm. We're listening. Noah, do you have any scientific evidence that rain will come from the sky? No, I don't. How do you know that rain? God told me. God. Who is God? Which God are you referring to? The true God, the God of Adam. I see. So you mean the God that kicked him out of the garden? That God. You mean the God that cursed Cain? You mean the God that allowed Cain to kill Abel? That's what you're talking about? And all this, and Noah, why is he going to destroy the world? Because God says the earth is filled with violence. Oh, the God that does not stop the evil from happening. That God is going to destroy the world 120 years. So another 120 years of crime and destruction and violence and rape and pillaging. And then he'll destroy the world by water from the sky. Yes, Noah says, God told me. Noah, as the scientists leave, they say, Mrs. Noah, we have institutions for your husband. Let us know if you would like us to check him in. And what are Noah's children thinking? So as they go out into town, Noah decides, I'm going to build this boat. Whether his family believes or not. And as he's building this boat, there goes, you know, Noah's children, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And as they're walking, they say, hey, aren't you Noah's son? Isn't your dad the one building that big old boat up there for the water from the sky? Right, <laughs> on a mountain, I see. And Shem and them have to deal with the shame. And they have to say, Dad, are you 100% sure that God told you to do this? Are you 100% confident? And I've often said this to myself when I first started studying husbands in the Bible. I said, God, why is it that when you call a man, you call him when he's by himself? Away from his wife. Because we're going to Moses in a second. So now you're thinking to yourself, Noah's out walking in the park and God comes and says, hey, I'm going to send a flood, build a big boat, put all your resources into this. What do you expect a man to tell his wife? Let me get this straight, Noah. It's going to rain for 40 days, 40 nights. Uh-huh. And you're going to build a boat to survive a global flood. Correct. Made out of wood. What if it crashes on the rocks? 
you know, like those mountains over there, since it's going to be for 40 days, right? Well, okay. And um, let's say a fire breaks out. Well, it'll be flooding all the time. Okay, okay. Maybe that one will work. Uh, so we get on the boat with animals, like tigers, right? Yeah, we're going to be on the, for 40 days. Yep. On the same vessel. And we can't exit the ship, and they're just going to be peaceable with us. Yes. How do, you get, how do you convince your wife? What could Noah tell her? The only thing he could tell her. I know that it was God who told her. But I believe there was something else that convinced Mrs. Noah. And the thing was, Noah started building. When he had to decide, do I get iPhone 6 or do I put my money into this boat? He put his money into the ark. And she said, this guy really believes this. He went to their savings account and she said, you know, we're saving that for our house in the future. Babe, a house ain't going to matter when the world is destroyed by flood. We need to put our money into this boat. Noah, that's my hard-earned money. I understand but I'm telling you, there's no point in investing in property when this whole thing's going to be destroyed. All she's thinking in her mind as his wife is, he really believes this. He's solidly convinced. And then the day of vindication comes. And as they go inside the ark, all of a sudden the first raindrop falls. I tell people sometimes it only takes one drop and you can rest in peace. And Noah sits on that boat and every drop that hit the wooden doors of that boat told his family. He saw it all along. And they were thankful. But patriarchs and prophets adds this point. It says that God rewarded Noah's faithfulness by saving his family. That was his reward. His faithfulness to do what God told him to do. Because if he doesn't obey God, what ark will they be saved on? No ark. Why? Can you imagine when the waters come and Noah's son, Noah's wife is running? Noah, what are we going to do? The world is flooding. Well, I meant to build that boat, but you guys thought it was crazy. So now we're all going to die? At that moment in time, all she's thinking is, I wish you would have what? Obeyed God and built the boat. This is what's coming to us in the future, brothers and sisters. When we get to heaven and you find out your family is lost and you have to look at your wife through the walls of the new Jerusalem, and have to tell her, and she's like, why did you not do this? Because, you know, baby, it was frustrating. We were arguing all the time. You should have done what Jesus told you to do. And she would have been inside the ark of safety. The best thing Noah could do for his family is obey God. 
There are men in this church whom God has called to do a work for him. And we cannot use our wives and our children as an excuse. Because the very thing he called us to do is the very thing that will save them. I'm telling you the truth. My family has been drawn closer to the Lord since I was in ministry, fulfilling the call, than when I was going to the house every other week. Calling them on the phone. Yeah, you know, so mom, when's the last time you read the Bible? Boy, don't talk to me about the Bible. I'm your mom. I read the book of Daniel before you were born. That ain't going to work. <laughs> so as a result, you're, you're thinking to yourself, I'm trying to win my family. I'm trying to win my siblings. I'm trying to win my dad. I'm trying to win my friends. And this is failing, failing, failing. Well, the question is, are you doing what God told you to do? If we're doing what Jesus told us to do, he says, if you do that, that will convince them. And if they wait till the last minute, at least the ark is built. There's room for them. So if there's a man here tonight that's waffling, trying to just stay in commerce, stay in economics, stay in some other profession because he feels like my wife won't argue with that. You need to do what Jesus told you to do. To save your wife and your children. Because the interference comes by the disobedience. And you don't want to be there in that day that Noah did not want to see. Which is for the rain to be falling on his wife's brow with no ark of safety. I have one more that I want to talk about. Go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Now, when we look at Moses, this is the call of Moses. Now, by this time, Moses has a wife. What's her name? Zipporah. And he has two sons. That's our understanding. Or at least one son. Now, as he's going back and forth, here again is another situation where here is a man who is a shepherd. And look at chapter 3. In verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the where? The backside of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. He's by Sinai. Apparently they're the same mountain, but that's for another discussion. Now as he comes here, Moses is on the backside of the desert, tending sheep. And again, here I am looking at this story as a husband thinking to myself, of course, he's waved down in the backside of the desert, away from his wife, and now the glory of the Lord wants to appear in a burning bush. Moses, Moses. So as Moses comes and wants to turn to see this amazing sight, and as he goes there, take off your shoes. Moses takes off his shoes and God says, I've heard the affliction of my people. I'm going to call and go, wait, 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 hold on. You said you're going to do what? 
Moses, I'm coming to send you to Pharaoh to deliver a nation. Okay, God, um, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. And he has all his different excuses. But here you go again. What does Moses say to Zipporah to convince her? This man's been tending sheep for 40 years. So as Moses comes home, hey, Zipporah, how you doing? Great. How was work today? I'm quitting. Excuse me? God called me to go deliver a nation. He told me to go deliver my people from Egypt. You and what army? Well, no, check this out. This stick, when I throw it down, is going to turn into a serpent. Moses, pick up the stick. The stick changes into a snake. Is your convincing evidence? Well, no, watch this. If I put my hand in, it'll get leprous. See this? It got leprous. Moses, didn't you kill an Egyptian? Yes, but those people are all dead now. That's all wiped away. It's gone. They don't even remember. Okay, that's a good, that's a good argument. So explain to me again how you're going to deliver slaves from the most powerful nation on the earth. Please explain. Well, see, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to tell him, let my people go. That's what he told me to say. That's what God told you to say. Moses, are you tired of tending sheep? Are you having a midlife crisis? You're out there in the desert. You're having mirages and delusions. Oh, man, I can see myself delivering a nation. <laughs> I know that when I was young, I was called. I never really tried it before. And as Moses, again, what does this man tell his wife? How can you convince her that God is really telling you to go back to Egypt to deliver an entire nation of slaves? Particularly his brother and sister. So now as he goes back to Egypt, it's very interesting that after Moses surrenders to the call, he decides, which is funny, none of his excuses involved his wife. None of them. But when he decides to surrender, Jesus, I'm going to go do what you told me to do. So now as he goes, I want you to notice what happens to him. He goes and gets his family. And this is what convinced me about the importance of traveling with your family. Because look with me in, Je in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 beginning in verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. This is what he told his father-in-law. Is that what God told him? Oh, just go check to see if, if your brother Aaron and your sister Miriam are still alive. Is that what he's supposed to be doing? Nope. But you know this is how we do things, right? God called me and he said, well, what are you doing? Well, we're just going to do some missions and um, go do some places and reach out to some people, try to be a blessing. <laughs> Knowing God told you in your mind, this is for life. <laughs> this is it. No more tending sheep. Quit the job. Turn in the pink slip. You're done. Oh, hey, just, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to go to Egypt just to see if they're alive. Now, after this, the Bible says, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, do what? 
What does he say in verse 19? Are you in the Bible with me? Yes, go and return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. Just to give you the assurance, Moses. So now Moses is told to go. Look at verse 20. Then Moses took his what? And his? So here's his wife and there's his two sons. This is why I like to travel with my family. This man was going to a very hostile place. Do you think he doesn't know what happened to Abraham? When Abraham went to Egypt, what did they do? They took his wife because she was, we know Zipporah is beautiful. So as a result, to take your wife and your kids to Egypt, when eating with the Jew or even interacting with the Jew is an abomination. They can take your women at will. But Moses says, if God called me, he also called them. So he's not, hey, Zipporah, stay here, watch the kids. I'm going to go to Egypt to do what God called me to do. No, it was assumed that if he's going to do what God called him to do, his family was supposed to come. But you have a lot of people traveling without family, doing what God called them to do. Now, as a result, the Bible says, and he returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In other words, God's saying it's not going to be easy. There's going to be challenges. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So now God tells him, this is what you're going to say. Now, after this, the Bible says in verse 24, and it came to pass... On the way. On the way where? To Egypt. So Moses is on the way to do what God has called them to do. Amen? It says, at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to do what? Are you not confused? Because I was when I read this. You called the brother in the wilderness, argued with all his excuses... Then when he went home, you said, Moses, it's time for you to go. The man decides to surrender to your will and go and do what you call him to do. And the Bible says God met him on the way to kill him. Why? The Bible says in verse 25, then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. And said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So God let him go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the what? Circumcision. I want you to understand what's going on here. Moses was a Jew. Amen. And as a Jew descended from Abraham, he is supposed to circumcise his son eight days after he's born. But apparently, Zipporah wasn't feeling that. So he's having this argument in his marriage, and Zipporah's like, no, you're not going to do that to my son. You're not going to circumcise my son. I feel like this thing is barbaric. It is inhumane. You're not going to circumcise my son. Now, Moses recognizes that God is the one who commanded circumcision. 
And now that he's about to go fulfill his purpose, God is looking at Moses on the way to Egypt. And he says, Moses, I will kill you before I let you deliver a nation and you didn't circumcise your son. I will kill you before I let you part the Red Sea when your son is uncircumcised. I will kill you before I use you to bring manna from heaven. Before I use you to bring water from a rock. Can you imagine all the potential in Moses? The man is in heaven right now. Resurrected. And God looked at Moses and said, listen, let me tell you how important the home is. I don't look at you based on even what I called you to do. I'm looking at you based upon have you done what I called you to do in your home life? And therefore, the best thing for Moses to do is to what? Obey God. Because his family would be without him. His brothers and sisters would still be slaves. Because he didn't obey God in a small thing. And this is why today we have this struggle, even today in the church and even in the world and even in the home. Zipporah stepping up because the father and the husband is not doing what God told him to do. Now she has to do what it was Moses' job to do. So now you have modern Zipporahs saying, look, there are no men in the church. There are no, this man in my house is not stepping up to do what he's supposed to be doing. So as a result, we get these women, and my mom was a single mom, who are saying, you know what? I have to do what I have to do. And it wasn't until I had kids of my own that I understood what my mom had to go through in inner city Chicago as a single mom. 14 hour days, one income. Only to have my mom come home after going grocery shopping and the gang break in and eat all of our food that she just bought. And I put my ear to the door and listened to my mother cry because whole week's worth of money that she made to buy groceries, gone. And she's trying to figure out how am I going to feed my kids? Because someone just broke in and stole it. And the question is, where was the dad? She wasn't meant to live that way. So in Moses' case, because he did not circumcise his son, he almost left his son without a father. And the Lord met him to kill him. So as parents, we may think, I don't want to do these things that God told me to do with my kids. I don't want to force it on them. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that because we think our kids are going to hate us or our spouse. But the reality is the best thing Moses could do <laughs> is obey God. That is the best thing we can do for our family. And if we don't, we understand where the interference is. Here's the conflict with Zipporah and says, you're a, you're a man of blood to me. Circumcising her son 
that Moses was supposed to be. And here she is about to lose her husband. That's why she did it. She's about to lose her husband of 40 years of marriage. Why? Because he neglected something in his home. God doesn't care how much potential we have. He doesn't care what we could do if we went forward and we're on our way to go do what he's called us to do. Did you circumcise your son? God says, I'll kill you before you even start. You see, time and time again, and I can go through the rest of the Bible and show this principle to be true. But for us, as we look at the family, as we look at the home, we have to make one fundamental commitment unchanging in our families. And that commitment is this. The best thing I can do for my family, the best thing I can do for my wife, for my husband, the best thing I can do for my children, the best thing I can do for my parents is obey God. Unquestioning obedience. Build the ark if he tells you to build it. Circumcise your son if he tells you to circumcise. But too often times, like Adam, <coughs> because of our family, we decide to take their side and abandon God. Knowing that all we're bringing is pain to them. We're not helping our family by catering to them. We are not encouraging them. It is not a sign of love. It is a sign of hatred. Because if I really love them, I will obey God. Like Noah. I will do what he's told me to do. So can you imagine that in our families, if we made this decision and we said, you know what? My number one goal is to recognize that number one above all things is to obey Jesus. If I'm a child, that's my number one aim. If I'm a wife, that's my number one aim. So that when I'm tempted, when I recognize that my private life makes a difference in the home. In case we didn't learn that from Eve. Oh, I sinned in secret. It doesn't matter. No, it does. Because of her own personal failure, she became a stumbling block for her husband. So there's a lot of people that think, oh, he's the priest of the home. She doesn't have to know the Bible. Wrong. Because she gets in the false doctrine, she'll bring him down. And unfortunately, very successfully so. It's a lot of women that don't understand the influence they have on their homes and especially on their husbands. She don't know the Bible. She's not prayed up. She's not seeking God. Making demands work doubly difficult. Because in her mind, it's his job to obey God. No, it's your job to obey God too. And that's the best thing you can do for your family. 
to say, I'm not doing my devotions just so I can look spiritual. I'm seeking God because the Bible says, seek me while I may be found. That applies to the husband and the wife and the kids. It changes the whole name of the game. Oh, why are we having worship? We're waiting for your dad. Why are we waiting for him to decide to have family worship? We know Jesus told us to have worship. So we're going to have worship with him or without him. Why are we waiting on mom? We don't need to wait on mom. We need to do what Jesus told us to do. Well, we can't go to evangelism unless we go as a family. We better do what Jesus has told us to do. I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of pain in the families of many churches simply because people do not follow this principle. They obey emotion. They obey inclination, impulse, but they won't obey God. But if you and I made that decision, what you leave is a legacy. Not just for your immediate family, but for your children's children. And for your children's children's children. And that's when we experience the blessing of Abraham. That he says, in your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Bow your heads with me. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. We have a decision to make. And that decision is very clear and very simple. Will we decide? Will we commit? Will we surrender? And say, Lord, the best thing I can do for my family is to obey you. Is to do what Jesus says is to follow his word in my home. That's the best thing I can do for my family. And there's someone here that says, I haven't been doing that. Or I've been afraid to go all the way with what Jesus has told me to do. And tonight you're saying, I'm not going to fight the Holy Spirit anymore. I'm not going to make excuses anymore. Tonight is the night where we get rid of the excuses. We get rid of the fear. We get rid of the shame. We get rid of the past. And we say, now is the time. It's going to be a new day. Because from this day forward, the best thing I'm going to do for my family and the first thing I'm going to do is do whatever Jesus says. If there's someone like that, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. And you say, I haven't been doing this, but I'm going to do it now. From this day forward, that's going to be the plan. You say, I haven't been doing it, but I'm going to be doing it. I'm not going to wait on an acceptable time. And I'm not going to make any more excuses. In my home, I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. That's the best thing I can do. 
I don't want the, re the repercussions that Adam got. I don't want to see my family outside the city. I don't want my family to be without a father, without a wife, without a mother, because I'm not doing what Jesus told me to do. Even in the smallest things of life. One more invitation to make. And that is a person in this room. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed and they say, I have not prioritized my family in my life, in my time. I have not made it a priority. And today I've seen the importance of family, the importance of the home. And if something is important, we have to give it time. I need to prioritize it, but I haven't been. And so tonight, I feel the Spirit has convicted me to make this a priority in my life. I want you to just slip out and meet me up front. Whoever you are, you say, I haven't made family a priority. But I need to make it a priority. There's anyone here. That says, I haven't made it a priority, but I need to make it a priority. And I'm going to make that commitment tonight. From this day forward, family is going to be a priority in my life. Anyone here that has the courage? This is why every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Because we're afraid who's looking at us and what people are going to think about us. If we answer these kind of invitations. But you know, and so I have to make this invitation for that person that hasn't made family a priority. Anyone else? I haven't made it a priority, but I will. This is a serious appeal. I see your hand. Anyone else? Before we pray and close this service, this is the time. This is the time. I see your hand. Anyone else? I see your hand too. Heavenly Father, you know that we are standing to make a very basic decision in our lives. And that is to prioritize doing what Jesus says in our family life. Too often, Lord, we are operating on other principles, psychology and counseling, but we're not operating based on the word of God. And so we have stood to say from this day forward, we're going to do what Jesus says. And trust that the normal waters of living will be transformed into the wine of heaven in our families because we have done what Jesus told us to do. And Lord, for those who have come to say, you know what? I need to make family more of a priority in my life. And as a result, we ask that you would teach us to give it more time, to give it more energy, 
to give it more strength. Lord, it's not an easy decision to make. And who would ever want to admit these things? But Father, you saw the hands and you see those who have come. And now we pray that as you give courage to take the first step, that you may also give us wisdom to follow through. And help those who had the courage to make this decision reap the benefits and blessings and continue to inspire others to do just the same. We thank you so much for hearing and answering this prayer. And we trust that you'll continue to speak to us as we meditate upon these things. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.